Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey folks, Al Martin here again at Making Data Simple. Thank you for being here. Reach out to us at any time at almartintalksdata at gmail.com. We'd like to hear from you. That's how we get a lot of our content. I hope everybody is healthy and well in the crazy times that we live in. And hopefully we'll give you a break for today on your run or whatever you're doing while you're listening to this podcast. Today, I have a distinguished guest, Kush Varshney, who has a history of electrical and computer engineering and a PhD at MIT. By the way, it's nice to talk, Kush, to a, a fellow electrical and computer engineer. Mm-hmm. That's always nice. Yeah, He is a distinguished research staff member and manager within IBM Research. Well, he leads the machine learning group in the foundations of trustworthy AI, and that's what we're going to dive into. He is also the founding co-director of the IBM Science for Social Good, which we'll get into. So that applies data science and predictive analytics to human capital management, healthcare, computational creativity, public affairs. I can keep going. Pretty much everything. Welcome, Kush. I appreciate you being here. I want to pick your brain for a little bit. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. I'd love to hear about your experience. Yeah, so uh, as you said, uh, I work at IBM Research. Uh, I'm a distinguished research staff member. Uh, So I uh, lead one of the groups focusing in on uh, what we call trustworthy machine learning or trustworthy AI. The idea there is that as we're seeing these days in all walks of life, all uh, all sorts of things, uh, machine learning and AI are being used, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in um, criminal justice system, even um, in hiring, uh, I mean, all sorts of things. And as these are very high stakes applications, uh, we want to make sure that uh, we're thinking about machine learning as a trusted partner for us as humans and really um, uplifting humanity um, as we develop these things. So uh, that's kind of uh, our uh, our sort of modus operandi. And um, we really want to understand and develop new algorithms to uh, to increase that trust. Fantastic. Have you always had a career that's surrounding AI in some way, shape, or form? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the electrical engineering. I kind of like to describe electrical engineering almost as the liberal arts of engineering because uh, it includes so many different things. Uh, I mean, it's so broad. Since I started college, it made sense to me to uh, focus more on the mathematical side of electrical engineering. Uh, that led me to doing more signal processing and uh, information theory sort of stuff, which is uh, precisely the sort of things that you need to work on machine learning. So PhD thesis includes a little bit mix of uh, some uh, more classical electrical engineering topics like detection theory, and then um, it also includes uh, some a new type of classifier uh, at that time, at least, uh, which is now uh, more than 10 years ago. Um, but it was a new type of machine learning classifier uh, that was proposed in, in my thesis at that time. Since I've been at IBM Research, which was started right after grad school, I've been in a group that was, I think, pretty much ahead of its time, which uh, was in applying these machine learning sort of ideas in all sorts of industrial domains. Uh, so you mentioned uh, human capital management and uh, and healthcare and was so, I mean, unusual for me coming in from grad school that uh, you could use machine learning in these very important topics. And uh, it was just so exciting for me when I was first starting out. 
and since then done uh, projects and uh, I mean more fundamental research and the world has changed in, in those past 10 years um, but I think in a good way um, we're using uh, these sort of technologies to, to really help. You know it's funny that you call it the liberal arts of engineering because all my friends tend to they call me when they've got a wiring issue at their home. It's <laughs> like hey man you need to come over and wire this and I'm like you don't quite get electrical and computer engineering, but you know what? I couldn't explain it to them for the longest time and they just refused to believe. So I learned how to wire and I'm not, kid you not, I'm going to somebody's house this weekend to help them wire part of their house because, you know, somebody's got to do it and I've got electrical engineering next to my name. Yeah, so I'm <laughs> going to be moving into a new house uh, next month, so I'll uh, call you up. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're an electrical engineer. You should be able to do that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I know you're also writing a book entitled Trustworthy Machine Learning. When, when does that come out? Hopefully uh, next year it should be out. Uh, so pretty comprehensive sort of look into um, uh, the different aspects of, uh, of what we mean by, uh, by trustworthiness. So that includes um, fairness, uh, explainability, robustness, all sorts of, uh, of different topics um, that uh, that are important uh, in order to build that trust. It's actually um, intended for developers as the, the main audience practitioners. Um, from the best that I can tell, it'll be the, the first book out uh, focused in, in that way. You know, so I've been in services since uh, March of this year. I made a switch. Before that, I was in product development, uh, you know, a large part of my career. And I developed a product called Watson OpenScale which monitors fairness, explainability, drift, visualizes, tracks AI models, etc. But what I'm going to try to do, I want to ask a few questions that I think the listeners would like me to ask. One funny story about that, because I was working on Watson, my daughter, she was younger at the time, mm-hmm. she'd always look at, you know, see the some of the, the AI we're doing around Watson. And every time I'd leave for work for the day, she would say, hey, watch out for that Watson. Don't don't destroy the world, Dad. I think that's a pretty common conception. And um, yeah, when they first were filming the Jeopardy episodes, uh, January of uh, 2011, I just started working at, at IBM Research. And um, so there was this one Friday, um, and they asked all of the employees not to come into work that day um, while they were doing the filming because they didn't want the uh, uh, the result accidentally leaked or anything. So yeah, it was an exciting time just to uh, to be starting off in my career. So back to the questions that I think folks want to hear about this. I hope I do them justice. Here's the first one. Is there such a thing as trustworthy AI? Actually, the first thing to even ask is what does it mean to be trustworthy? If you were to say that a person was trustworthy, maybe even me, um, what sort of characteristics or attributes would you want in that person? I'd want real news, not fake news. Mm-hmm. I'd want accountability. Mm-hmm. I want transparency. Mm-hmm. I want fairness. I'd want them to be ethical. Mm-hmm. Uh, all those, but the coming back to you and putting it back onto you is that's a tall order. When mm-hmm. some of the folks that are creating AI are, we're all human. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have different beliefs. Hence, yeah. we all have different biases. Mm-hmm. So, how do you make that happen in a program that is just doing what we tell it to do? So specifically, um, it turns out that uh, in the organizational management literature, they've come up with four precise attributes of what uh, you need from a person uh, to be trustworthy. So uh, they pretty much are along the lines of what you said. So the first attribute is that 
Uh, the person should be competent, uh, credible at, uh, at what they're doing. Second is that they should be reliable so that that competence sticks around um, in different sort of operating conditions, different settings, and so forth. Third is some level of openness or intimacy so that you can communicate back and forth with that person. And then the fourth thing is that they should have some level of selflessness, that uh, that they're not working only for their own goals, but thinking in a broader sense for uh, for society and so forth. And yeah, there's exact mappings to what we want out of machine learning systems. So the first uh, attribute being accuracy um, uh, of these machine learning models. But when we move up to the second attribute, the reliability, that includes um the fairness, um, the robustness, uh, to, uh, and uh, sort of robustness both to adversaries and robustness to distribution shifts and so forth. And then third one is explainability, but also um, uh, so that people can understand how it is that machine learning models make their decisions, but then also um, uh, wanting some level of transparency into the overall end-to-end uh, sort of process um, of how this AI system was developed, what training data was there, what testing has been done, what sort of choices were made along the way. And then finally, um, the uh, the selflessness is along the lines of uh, of actually um, the point that you just made, which is um, uh, how does the machine understand the values that society has? How do I instruct or um, elicit from uh, from policymakers and others that this is the right behavior and, and so forth? And then using uh, using AI for social good. All of those are kind of what we want. And now the hard part is making it happen. Right. So, in our research, we are making inroads towards it, and um, there's plenty of of other researchers in uh, different companies and in academia who are who are doing this. I think the the main message is that um, we need to build up toolkits uh, that are ways to kind of put together different sort of uh, needs that different sort of consumers and personas have, because trust isn't the same thing for everyone. Or, uh, I mean, these different sort of characteristics aren't the same for everyone, because if you want, uh, I mean, transparency or explainability of a machine learning algorithm, and you're the affected user, the person about whom the loan decision was made, or the patient um, uh, in a medical setting, you have a different need than the loan officer or the doctor, and you have, and even those folks have different needs than um, the regulator or um, the hospital administrator, or whoever else um, is involved. So explainability isn't just one thing. Fairness is also just not just one thing. There's uh, many different forms of fairness uh, that, that one might need to to have. So, all of these sort of topics. The problem is it's not just that simple. Um, there is some complication to it. And um, the main thing I've started saying is uh, you need to avoid just taking shortcuts. Just think through everything, um, kind of think about what are all the, the sort of bad things that can happen and try to counteract them um, in advance, preempt them. And one big thing towards that is that uh, it shouldn't just be the developers um, of the technology, um, but there should be the inclusion of, uh, of diverse voices, especially from marginalized uh, groups and populations that uh, are kind of uh, putting in their thoughts as well. Um, having a diverse uh, team of developers is one start to that, but even beyond that, I think it's important to, uh, uh, to consult with a panel of uh, folks from marginalized groups as well. That's a darn good explanation. Appreciate that. Particularly like how you came up with the decision, that transparency, you know, demonstrating fairness, et cetera. In other words, if you do it home loan, you open it up. The worst thing it can be is a black box. Yep. But if it's opened up, it shows that, hey, the, the person that was denied a loan had too little savings. 
and it gives you the decision tree, if you will, mm-hmm. or, or the minimal amount of savings needed or, you know, whatever they're going to put down in the house. Now, I think this is an uphill battle at the same time, because I'd like your thoughts on this. And that mm-hmm. is that stuff, I think, can be solved. You know, biases can be outlined and could be presented. And, and you know, that's kind of what we did with OpenScale. We'll show you where we see potential biases mm-hmm. in the data itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, could be in the algorithm or the data. You might talk to that. But the other thing is, is there seems to be a lot of unintended consequences, meaning mm-hmm. the social algorithms that are out there. When they're picking, you know, a lot of times they're being driven by ad revenue. Mm-hmm. If somebody, this is a bad example maybe, but somebody clicks on fake news, they give them more fake news mm-hmm. because that's what you're interested in. That's where, you know, that's where they're going to get more interest and and get you to hit more phone swipes. How do you deal with that? How do you address that? Because it's like, I understand what you're saying, and, and we're making progress in that area, but sometimes it feels like as much progress as we're making there, there is a whole other side of it that's tearing down that progress and making people more suspicious. I think uh, you're hitting the nail on the heads. If you saw this uh, Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, that was exactly what they were keying in on. And I think the way to counteract it is looking at uh, the various sort of uh, objective functions or um, kind of what the problem specification is that that you're looking at. Because once you've kind of decided on that problem specification, um, you being the data scientist in consultation with uh, any sort of business owner or problem owner, along with, um, as I was saying before, ideally having um, uh, these diverse voices to contribute to that, then a lot of the work that happens in machine learning or, I mean, data science or anything is um, is somewhat kind of uh, straightforward. So the most important stage is that problem specification phase. And if you are maximizing for revenue, then, I mean, things will happen as uh, as you described them, right? So if you're maximizing for click-through rate or, or things like that, then um, it does lead to uh, these sort of perverse sort of incentives. And uh, I think the way around it is actually to think about what are those specifications that uh, are a bit broader, um, that aren't just uh, maximizing one sort of metric, because we want a society that um, is informed, is uh, is engaged, is uh, is not kind of full of divisions. Then um, that is a different uh, objective function than we want if we're just trying to maximize uh, the ad revenue. So, um, as a society, sort of think about uh, what are our values, what do we want these systems to uh, to do for us. Then we can start encoding them and. Uh, maybe uh, have some uh, more oversight from uh, from regulators about it as well. Yeah, so let me take this one step further. This is kind of a morbid thought, but I kind of want to get your thoughts on that. I'm sure the people that are out there listening, I, I would imagine they'd want to hear this. kind of deals with ethics or the decision tree. You'll, you'll follow what I'm saying here. And say, say I'm an autonomic car. I'm about to, you know, I predict I'm going to get into a wreck with the probability of killing all folks, like six uh, individuals in both cars. Or alternatively, I could swerve off the bridge and only kill two people. Are we going to let AI determine or make those kind of calls? I mean, eventually it comes to that, doesn't it? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so this is called the trolley problem and something that is very important for us to understand. So there was a large scale study um, at the MIT Media Lab a couple of years ago called the Moral Machine Project. They had uh, hundreds of thousands of people give their judgments on exactly these sort of questions and not even just on the number of people um, of uh, six and two, but whether some of the people were old or young or um pregnant or disabled or uh, men, women, I mean, various sort of characteristics. Uh, they got these judgments from uh, people around the world, and then they analyzed those uh, those results. And they were actually, uh, I mean, able to show that cultures group into kind of three main buckets, um, uh, where they have different sort of preferences on uh, kind of who lives and who dies. Um, this kind of speaks to the, the earlier point, which is... Um, this value alignment problem, I mean, what does society really want is not always consistent. So, I mean, it should be based on some sort of human input on these values, but even then, there's no universal sort of concept on this. It really is a question that uh, how do you do the value alignment uh, in a way that uh, can influence these uh, these AI systems in the, in the proper way? Where do you think we're going to go with that? I mean, oh, by the way, I think that uh, it's interesting that uh, for me... AI has kind of brought the humanities back, the study of humanities. and Because, yeah, these are social, cultural, society dilemmas that we're going to be facing. And, uh, you know, those are tough things to come to, to terms with. What's actually interesting and fun for me, um, so actually uh, coming back to my own personal story, I mean, in high school, I liked social studies and um, I mean, uh, just as much as I liked, uh, I mean, math and uh, physics and stuff. So, um, I mean, I ended up becoming an electrical engineer, but uh, nowadays I get to um, I work with sociologists and all sorts of people uh, in my job. So I think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, coming full circle is is, is great. And um yeah, no, I mean, to, to your question around what's next, how do we deal with this? What are the right ways to do it? So I think uh, we are going to be at a point, the machines will be able to learn from us, from society, and uh, do it in a way that's natural. So we uh, a couple of years ago, as uh, one of our projects in the, the Science for Social Good initiative, did this project around actually um, doing the value alignment problem um, in a more natural sort of way. And instead of self-driving cars, we looked at uh, the, the video game Pac-Man. And we kind of decided that uh, we wanted to teach the machine that it was immoral or sort of wrong to eat the ghosts um, while playing Pac-Man. You just wanted to clear the board without eating the ghosts. And um, we didn't want to encode that explicitly because... That would be the easy thing to do. But in real life, uh, every sort of moral dilemma, there's no like black and white sort of answer to it. So we had um, a lot of uh, people play Pac-Man without eating the ghosts. And uh, from that, the system was able to learn um, what that moral behavior was that, that we wanted to it, it, to learn, even though the, the points would be higher if, if, they, if the system did eat the ghosts. The way forward is really... Um, Having a lot of tools and technologies that uh, that allow these um, uh, these systems to to learn from us uh, in the best possible way, and I kind of joke with my wife um, that one of the jobs that our kids might end up doing when they grow up is uh, something that you might not even um, think to, is a job, which is kind of a, a trainer or um, a choreographer for for AI systems. So um, uh, we'll, we'll we'll see how that goes. I think it's very possible. By the way, you've answered that tough question extremely well. So in the Pac-Man, 
have to play Pac-Man tonight. I've got a Pac-Man machine here, just in your honor. Did the machine ultimately eat the ghost at time? Because I say to hell with it. <laughs> I, yeah. I got to live and eat yeah. the ghost. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes it would if it was kind of cornered and it was um, near the the power pellets and stuff. So it, it was interesting to watch. So we had one parameter that could um, kind of tune um, how much uh, it was uh, focusing in on the points versus uh, what it had learned from the human demonstrations. And so, um, yeah, it, it kind of would switch its policies back and forth. Have you worked on any government types of research? I mean, in terms of how AI is created responsibly, any work you're doing there or thoughts you, you have there relative to you know the world we're about to enter into? So I haven't personally um, at IBM worked on any um, sort of uh, government projects, but uh, one thing that I can talk about is kind of how we see the governance of AI, actually. Um, So it's important um, for there to be regulations and kind of uh, controls um, in this whole space, right? Both in the development of it and in the deployment and everything. So uh, one of our current projects is uh, this concept that we call fact sheets. Uh, what fact sheets are, are a way to um, have a transparent reporting mechanism. Um, so throughout the entire life cycle, as uh, we're developing the AI, uh, starting from the data, the problem specification that we talked about, all the way to um, uh, the data preparation, feature engineering, modeling, um, testing, and all of those things, they all generate so-called facts, um, different test results, different uh, quantitative sort of sort of things. And if we collect all of those facts into a fact sheet, um, that can give us information around uh, the different considerations that we might have. Those could be fairness metrics, accuracy metrics, robustness metrics, and so forth. And then we can put those controls on there. So anytime in any part of the process, whether um, it's in the building stage or in the deployment stage or anywhere in between, um, you can kind of say, uh, hold your horses, um, the system is beyond certain requirements. And so you can, I mean, truly govern uh, AI systems using these sort of ideas. So let me ask you another tough question. I don't know if I'll word this correctly. You know, different governments are culturally different. One government, where I'm going with this, is one government might prioritize an open data set versus privacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, the bigger data set, the better decisions you can make mm-hmm. uh, because you've got, you know, it's almost a statistical mm-hmm. relevance or question. Therefore, those governments that tend to be, they have more of those open data sets, maybe sacrificing privacy, tend to, uh, will we'll have better algorithms in the end, perhaps. Although they would be sacrificing privacy, which many in some cultures are unwilling to uh, forgo. Does that worry you any? Do you think that there's going to be a a differentiation in the progress of certain governments because of how they, the the governance that they have? Yeah, I I think so. So that's a really, um, I mean, insightful question. So in Europe, for example, they have the GDPR, as we all know, which is. extremely concerned about privacy. And in Europe, in general, they uh, prioritize human rights as the most important thing. In the US, we don't have a, I mean, the same sort of GDPR-like thing. Canada is going to be passing something very similar to GDPR um, uh, in the near future. And in uh, certain other cultures, uh, in Asia, for example, 
privacy isn't even seen always as something that should be aimed for. Um, so I think uh, these differences are going to manifest in um, the culture around AI, um, the culture around what AI ethics means. In particular, right now, the way AI ethics is studied, it's very centered towards the West, um, towards Europe, um, and uh, a little, I mean, somewhat towards the Americas. But we need a broader conception of, of what we mean by AI ethics, because um, uh, if there's African perspectives or Asian perspectives or other um, indigenous perspectives that were, um, that were lacking, um, that isn't AI really for all. So, I think there's a lack of uh, of inclusion of uh, of the, these sort of perspectives, and um, yeah, I mean it can lead to um, differences in uh, how that AI development happens, what capabilities uh, uh, can be achieved. Uh, I mean all sorts of things. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean how things play out over the next five or ten years. If I'm a company listening to the podcast, can you give me some steps or your advice? and how a company can best accomplish trust and fairness? The most important is for a company just to to go down and, uh, I mean, just do a trade. Um, So it's very easy to be that company that's just maximizing for um, ad clicks or whatever have you, right? Uh, Whatever industry you're in, you can set up your system to maximize for for particular metrics, your KPIs that are around... um, uh, accuracy or um, monetary sort of things. And if you're not caring about uh, fairness uh, to begin with, then you're not ever going to even even try to, to achieve it. So I think the main message is, um, I mean, start uh, including these sort of considerations in your thinking as you're setting up your your AI systems. But then once you have those in mind, I think there's plenty of tools out there, including um some that uh, that we've contributed to. So um, we have a few open source toolkits, AI Fairness 360 and AI Explainability 360, as well as the Adversarial Robustness Toolbox. And these are open source tools um, at IBM Research. We also have some enhanced editions of these uh, that are available for companies. And then, as you mentioned, Watson OpenScale. Um, so we contributed uh, the fairness and explainability algorithms there, um, as well as the drift. And um, all of those are, I mean, uh, I mean, tools that one can use uh, once you are really kind of thinking about it, that yes, I do want to, to achieve this uh, as one of my goals. Back to where we started, science for good and social initiative. What is that? The uh, IBM Science for Social Good Initiatives. So my manager, uh, Sashka Mysilovich, we founded this thing uh, back in uh, around 2015, 2016. So it's a program that we've run meant to uh, address the uh, different sort of topics that are part of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, So things like poverty, hunger, health, education, the environment, and inequalities of various sorts. And we partner with uh, various sort of nonprofit organizations and social enterprises to do applied data science projects that help move the needle forward um, in helping those organizations uh, achieve their goals. And um, eventually that means achieving the uh, these sustainable development goals. And so we typically have uh, social good fellows. Um, so these are... Um, Students uh, that we bring aboard uh, in this uh, summer internship sort of format, we uh, often have five or six of our um, top researchers involved in these projects. And uh, so in partnership with the nonprofit organizations, we figure out what is uh, 
a good project uh, that makes sense that's um, addressing a pain point, and then we um, kind of figure out, uh, or is there an AI sort of solution that uh, could be beneficial? And then we do the research, develop new algorithms, and um, and work with these organizations to uh, uh, to demonstrate what's possible. Like it goes back to those social studies. Sounds like humanities and everything we talk about. That's fantastic. Put your uh, prediction hat on. Three years from now, where do you think? AI will be, or trust in AI, fairness in AI, where do you think we'll be three years from now? I think we've made a lot of progress on these different methods and algorithms for fairness, for explainability, for robustness, and so forth. And I think the the missing piece right now is what we've talked about. It's um, kind of how to deal with these different sort of relationships among these different pillars of trust and accuracy. Um, how do you kind of enable... Uh, various organizations and policymakers to figure out what it is that they really want from these systems, um, kind of be more human-centric in a sense, because all of these considerations are humanistic considerations that we want. Um, so I think we're going to be moving to a place where these systems are much more um, like partners to us that we can go back and forth with and that we can um, uh, really instruct to be um, to be our trusted partners. Of all the aspects of AI, what are you most bullish on? Actually, let me say one thing which I think um, deserves uh, to be a, a high priority, which is uh, causality. So um, uh, the standard sort of machine learning approach is uh, is based on correlations and associations, which are not necessarily causal. Um, so you can change an input to a machine learning model and not be able to expect uh, some change to the output uh, that you might think. Whereas in a causal model, uh, changes to inputs do lead to changes to outputs. It's a growing field in AI and, and in machine learning research, but I think it needs uh, a lot more emphasis. And it's the lack of causality is actually what leads to a lot of issues in terms of the lack of fairness, lack of robustness, and, and so forth. So uh, that's something I'm very hopeful um, will become uh, much more mainstream and will become kind of uh, the thing that uh, that everyone is doing in order to, to move AI forward. What I'm bullish about is a little bit different, maybe. I think what will happen is... Um, that AI will actually um, become part of, uh, I mean, everyday life, every sort of endeavor that uh, that humans have, because we're almost there. I mean, no matter what industry you think about, um, uh, there is, I mean, at least an incipient sort of uh, look into machine learning and AIs. I think what we're going to get to uh, very soon is uh, is AI pretty much everywhere. You worked with your your brother mm-hmm. on something called White Noise for the Nose. The way I read it is really cool. You have a created a mathematical model that predicts how humans perceive the smell of particular substances. Mm-hmm. And you've also got a method by which if you've got that mathematical model, you can have an equal blend to create white noise to essentially, you'll get the right words here, but like drowned out that same smell. We've got Watson, you know, our AI technologies is learning to cook and mm-hmm. identifying flavors. It all kind of all comes to fruition. Mm-hmm. I wanted you to tell me a little bit. That, that's fascinating. It's cool that you got to work with your brother, but the the concept is really fascinating. It's something I hadn't even thought of before. My brother actually, um, so he's my twin brother, and uh, we both started working at IBM Research within a few months of each other. Um, he's now a faculty member at uh, the University of Illinois. For about uh, two and a half, three years, um, he was also working at IBM Research, and um, 
he proposed and uh, was leading this project called uh, the Chef Watson project. Um, and uh, so a big part of the Chef Watson stuff was to um, understand flavors and smells uh, and fragrances and so forth, because um, a lot of taste um, is influenced by, by smell. Uh, so we were developing uh, these uh, these models. Uh, I was helping him out to um, uh, be able to predict uh, the uh, the sort of pleasantness or the um, sort of uh, the odor characteristic as as perceived by humans from the uh, physical chemical properties of the molecules themselves. And uh, I mean that was great for for the Chef Watson stuff. And then. Um, Putting on the signal processing hat, um, he and I were kind of uh, talking about it actually on a drive um, from Westchester County up to Syracuse, where my parents live. Um, and uh, so, I mean, on this, uh, whatever, four-hour car ride, we were just kind of bouncing ideas off each other that now that we know that uh, we can do things with smell um uh, what sort of uh, signal processing sort of tasks are there that uh, no one has done before? And uh, noise cancellation is uh, is clearly one of them. So um, uh, we know Bose and others, I mean, have these uh, these noise cancellation things for sound. Um, so we were, I mean, just bouncing that idea off of each other. And um, this idea came out, uh, what would it mean to cancel out a particular smell? And uh, and that's kind of what, uh, what, what Dude, this idea you was. you need to get this on the market quick. <laughs> You'll, you'll make a ton of money. You can retire. Look, I'll buy one immediately to put one directly in one of my kids' rooms. Any closing thoughts, anything that uh, was left unsaid around AI, fairness in AI, trustworthy machine learning, anything? Uh, no, I think we covered a lot. All right. So, Kush, where can folks reach you or find out more about the concepts that we talked about today? Yeah, so um, if you Google for um, IBM Science for Social Good, you'll come to the uh, website for our social good program. If you Google for um, uh, Trusted AI or Trustworthy AI, um, then we have a pretty nice webpage with uh, information about our overall set of uh, research that we do. And on the specifics of the uh, the open source toolkits, uh, AI Fairness 360 and um, AI Explainability 360 and AI Fact Sheets uh, 360, you can um, just find those on uh, the web as well. Fantastic. I have to say this is one of the most, uh, well, one of the areas that I'm most proud of IBM on. We're, we're leading, thanks to folks like you. And, and as you do do that Google search, you'll see IBM at the top of the list. Uh, for those same reasons. Thank you so much. Hey, I do have a few questions about Kush the person. You willing to answer those? I always yep. like to have a little fun to end. Yeah, absolutely. Let's see. What, what's the last thing you watched on TV and why did you choose to watch it? Um, yeah, I'm actually at home right now with my uh, visiting my parents. Um, so we were uh, watching The Good Doctor, um, which is one of the shows that they enjoy. Nice. So you're watching it because your parents want to watch it. Uh, I mean, it, it's a good show, too. I mean, I've watched it myself as well. <laughs> so, look, we've been talking about AI, the future. Let's say your great-great-grandchildren are listening to this years from now. Mm -hmm. Any wisdom that you pass on to them and the concepts we talked about? Uh, yeah, I think um, that you can marry um, sort of the work that you do with um, with benefiting societies. So always keep an eye out for that. And um uh, actually, one example: um, my own great-grandfather, uh, great, great-great-grandfather. Uh, great he was actually the first person, uh, to, first Indian uh, person to study at MIT in 1905, and um, he studied uh, glass making. And uh, he went back to India and. Uh, 
Uh, he started this um, sort of uh, glassmaking uh, factory, which um, was actually meant to um, kind of uh, uh, do things that would be against what the British wanted to help India achieve its independence. And um, he collected uh, money from uh, from a lot of people um, in order to start this thing. And it was not just um, to illustrate uh, to the Indian public that uh, there can be industry based in India that it didn't have to come from Britain, but um, he also kind of educated um, a lot of uh, people uh, through that, uh, through a school in, in glassmaking. And uh, it was, I mean, really remarkable um, how it contributed to the independence of India. And um, it was using the technology and technology technological aspects um, uh, with a social cause. And I think um, uh, that will always remain uh, true, whether it uh, was in 1905 or um, in 2020 or um, in uh, whatever, 2100 or uh, beyond. Kush, that's fascinating. You know, uh, that's exactly why I ask these crazy questions, because I'll get an answer like that. Terrific. What do you work for in your free time? What do you do for fun? Uh, enjoy watching sports, um, and uh, also I usually enjoy traveling. Um, that's one of my passions. But uh, in this calendar year, um, so it'll be the first time in my life I think that uh, I've stayed within the state of New York uh, for the entire calendar year. Do you have a role model? Somebody not related to you, by the way. I mean, folks like uh, kind of uh, maybe like Leonardo da Vinci is, uh, I mean, a really impressive sort of how he was able to um, bring together uh, a lot of um, of different sort of uh, topics together, um, really a Renaissance man. Um, so folks like that uh, in a more modern sense. Um, so Erwin Jacobs, who um, was the founder of Qualcomm, uh, I think he's a pretty impressive guy, um, doing a lot on the, the social side as well. Um, so I think, uh, I mean, his life story is uh, is one that I, uh, I mean, somewhat tried to emulate as well. Nicely done. Uh, lastly, what book do you recommend most? Uh, yeah, if I were talking to you next year, I would recommend my own book once it's out, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I mean, I think uh, one book uh, that uh, that I read recently, um, I'm forgetting the exact title of it, but it's about... Um, uh, how um, the world, how our understanding of the world isn't exactly um, what the popular press makes it out to be. So um, kind of if you, if you dig into the statistics of um, where the world is, what the biggest challenges are and where we've made progress over um, the last several decades, um, it paints a different picture. And so I'm um, kind of having that uh, uh, that understanding. And yeah, now I remember the title, it's called uh, Factfulness. And um, I think uh, that's a pretty interesting book. Factfulness. Fantastic. I'm going to look that up. Uh, I try to, I'm a avid reader. Uh, that's on the list. Kush, thank you. Everything you've provided has been, uh, you know, you've exceeded expectation. Awesome. Greatly appreciated. It. it was a great discussion. Thank you so much for, for being with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing how it turns out. And for all you podcasters out there, as usual, you know where to reach us, almartintalkstate at gmail.com. And until next time, we'll see you on the podcast. See you guys. 
Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Oh.